0: Can you start by explaining to us what is an evangelical Christian? There are many different ways that we can describe evangelicalism, but probably the best is to take take a a definition from David Bebbington and Mark Knoll, who talk about it really as having four parts. The first part, it's about conversionism, that there's an emphasis on a need for individual transformation, a personal decision to accept Jesus Christ. There's an emphasis on biblicism, that the Bible is the ultimate authority for life, the Third would be crucicentrism. That's an emphasis on the cross, an emphasis on Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And then a fourth aspect is activism, the idea that you live out the gospel in both missionary and social reform efforts. So basically, this four-part definition, it's focused on belief. That's at the center of the definition, but it also has a behavioral component. In the contemporary American context, what we see So when we talk about evangelicalism, we're talking about a movement. It's a theological and religious movement. It has a lot of different parts, a lot of different people involved in it. And one of the things you'll also find is that some people define themselves as evangelicals and fit the four-part definition. Others define themselves as evangelicals and don't. Some people fit the four-part definition, look like evangelicals by every sort of way that we scholars would consider themselves evangelical but they would be very uncomfortable and wouldn't like that term. Evangelicals, one way to say it would be typically theologically conservative Christians.
1: Um, what, do, what do we mean by theologically conservative?
0: When we talk about theologically conservative Christians, we're thinking of those Christians who um, take things like they take the Bible um, as the literal word of God, as, as scripture that is essential for their understanding of their relationship with God. Evangelicals also like to emphasize a personal relationship with Christ. They talk about their religion in individual terms and see the need for individual salvation.
1: So everybody who defines as evangelical in the States then believes very strongly that they have a personal relationship with Jesus, is that right?
0: Well, yes and no, you might think that. It's true that when we talk about evangelicalism, we're typically thinking about those people who would describe themselves as either born again or having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. However, what complicates the question is that sometimes we get people captured as evangelicals because of questions that we ask in religious surveys. We might ask someone, are you born again in your faith, or would you describe yourself as an evangelical Christian? If that question is asked and no other question about religion is asked, what we find is that some people say yes because— It seems kind of close. Culturally, they identify as Christian. That seems to match what they understand. But if we start to unpack it, talk to people about what they actually believe, look at their behavior, what kinds of connections they have to religious organizations, they may or may not actually fit a technical definition of evangelical.
1: We're looking at data here in this program about people who define as white evangelical. Now, that's not a polling category that's used in the UK or across Europe, and we don't have standard questions in exit polls, for example, about are you born again? So can you help me to understand the significance of white evangelical as a category?
0: Sure. Well, I think the first place, let's start with that racial category. When we look at religion in the United States and we look at voting behavior in the United States, what we find is that African-Americans vote very differently than, um, than typical whites. In particular, African-Americans are overwhelmingly Democratic in their voting behavior. So in a presidential election, roughly 9 of 10 African-Americans are going to vote for a Democrat, where the white vote is going to be more split. So what we've done in recent years as we're looking at this data, um, the people who work on surveys have decided that it's best to separate out African American Christians from white Christians and then they have sort of created this category we call white evangelical. It's not necessarily a category that fits in our churches, but it's a category that fits really well when you're looking at charts of political data. So they realized that that black evangelicals, African American evangelicals and white evangelicals would actually hold almost the same theological religious views, but they turn them into politics differently. So we separate out the white evangelicals so we can understand how they vote, and then we look differently at the African-American Protestants.
1: So from what you're saying, it sounds as though people vote according to their race or ethnicity first, rather than their faith. Is that correct?
0: Um, Again, as with so many questions in American politics, yes and no. I mean, race is an important factor in American politics. It's a particularly important factor, however, I would say, for people of color. So for an African-American in the United States, given the experience of blacks in the United States, the historical institutional issues of racism and oppression, this has gone on for more than the history of the United States. That's a really important factor for many African-Americans when they go to the ballot. Most African-Americans will tell you that race is always something that's just front and center, that they're very aware of in a predominantly white culture. Where, if you talk to a white voter, They might think of themselves as a white voter, but more likely they're just thinking themselves as a voter, and race is not a natural prism through which they're thinking, even though it, of course, affects everything we do. So for the white evangelicals, I'm not sure there's so much thinking, I'm white and I'm going to vote this way, as much as they're thinking, I'm evangelical and I'm voting this way, where for the African-American evangelical, race is going to, most cases, it looks like race is a more important factor of many factors.
1: It's not that long ago, is it, that parts of the church, and I I think I'm probably thinking more of the white church, were very separatist, interpreting the scripture of being set apart as distaste for the grubby world of politics. How have we seen their voting behavior develop over the last 40, 50 years? Sure. Yeah. So we
0: basically, we usually try to go back to the early 20th century. We look at a divide between Protestantism into two camps we often call the modernists and the fundamentalists. And there were just lots of debates there as scientific advances, lots of things are changing, we begin to see churches go in somewhat different directions. Liberal theology, one side, that would be the group that had a more optimistic view of human nature, looked at the idea that the kingdom of God would be revealed in the improvement of society, was looking for things to get better and better and better before Christ returns, a lot of embracing of modern scientific thinking. So that's kind of one group. Then we have a group that we call fundamentalists, who, in, ex- in essence, were reacting against liberal theology. They were looking at what was happening in some theological circles and saying, no, that's not right. We need to return to the fundamentals of the faith, hence that name, fundamentalism. And people are moving away from that. This this strand emphasized the sinful nature of humankind, the concern that—the idea that it was impossible, really, to achieve the kingdom of God in history So things aren't going to get better and better and better. The idea here is things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And also from this side, again, with that focus on individual salvation. So this side, the fundamentalists, are looking at the dominant culture. They're seeing things change. They're concerned about changes in the culture that go against what they believe to be fundamentals of their Christian faith. So they decide that it's probably best to separate from the culture. So we do begin to see in the early to mid-20th century a lot of institutions, things like Bible schools, um, Bible presses, so different publishing houses for Christian materials, that kind of thing. So people moving back. And as part of that, not all by any stretch, but many theologically conservative Christians said, this world of politics, I don't know anymore. I'm not sure as a Christian I should be involved in that. I think maybe I need to pull away from that piece of the culture. So as we move toward the middle to the end of the 20th, the middle of the 20th century. As we moved to the middle of the 20th century, we kind of had this split between some Christians saying we need to be involved and typically being somewhat more liberal theologically, and then other Christians, more conservative Christians saying we think we want to separate.
1: And yet they joined back in, didn't they, from about the 1970s onwards. Can you talk us through that?
0: Sure. So, so what we see is, again, there's lots of things going on. It's a complicated story, but things really seem to start... Um, Moving back, I'd say, into the mainstream of politics in the, in the mid 1970s, a lot of it starts. A lot of it starts with the um, campaign of Jimmy Carter. When Jimmy Carter ran for president, he he was a Southern Baptist. He would speak openly about his faith. Um, he didn't necessarily use the term evangelical so much himself, but he would talk about being born again. In fact, he had some interesting press because of that. And what we begin to see is that. Many theologically conservative Christians are thinking, you know, we should be more involved. We also have to remember that we've had the Watergate scandal, lots of difficult things happening in American government, people very concerned with corruption, wanting to move us back in a more honest direction. Jimmy Carter was a piece of that. So Jimmy Carter was actually very popular with a lot of evangelical fundamentalist Christians. So 1976, we began to see more people involved in the presidential campaign, But what happens is that they get um, somewhat disillusioned with Jimmy Carter and his his policies. And we have Ronald Reagan running in 1980 who recognized that there were some fundamental concerns of these more conservative Christians that he could appeal to. So he talked about things like the pro-life view of abortion and others that very much appealed to these conservative Christians. And so we began to see them drawn more to the Republican Party. Interestingly, in that 1970s, early 1980 window, it wasn't clear if conservative Christians would end up more aligned with the Democrats or the Republicans, and both sides were kind of vying for them. But Reagan began a movement that solidifies in toward the late 1980s, where the Republican Party becomes the more natural home for conservative Christians.
1: And we see that quite starkly now in a lot of ways. In terms of the def- their defining issues in politics, that group of, for the sake of argument, white evangelicals, what do you see currently as being their deal breakers politically?
0: Well, there's just kind of a, a list of things, obviously, that the most typical deal breakers that we talk about are ones you probably hear about as well. We often call those the cultural issues, one of those being abortion and the other having to do with LGBT rights, with gay rights. The abortion issue became a big issue in the 1970s following the Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, that moves this back to to a decision in our legislative process in new ways, forces forces the question really by making abortion legal and then beginning beginning more of a national conversation. Before Roe v. Wade, it used to be a state-by-state conversation as states had the right to decide what they would do about abortion law. The Supreme Court says it's a, it's a right for all Americans, and therefore it moves to the national level. So, um, so once that, that issue moves to the national level, we begin to see abortion becoming a more central issue in American politics, again, at that national level. And that has become a really rallying point for conservative Christians. They, they describe themselves as pro-life. Sure. Um, when, you, when you look at abortion, it's, it's, it's a, it's, the issue is, I think, fundamentally an argument about um, a, a couple of things. One is, what's the nature of actually what's happening in the process um, in this woman's womb? On the pro-life side, the argument is there's human life, developing human life, and we need to protect that human life. That human life has this, this right to life that, that cannot be denied. On the other side, there's a concern about, well, what about the rights of the woman, her right to decide? It's her body. What decisions does she make about that? Um, so, so ultimately, this is this is a, a fundamental clash about what's actually going on. But for those on the pro-life side of the abortion debate, they're fundamentally concerned about these um, about what's going on in the womb, with life in the womb and this idea that there are millions of babies being killed. So it's a pretty powerful rallying point when you start to think about the number of lives that are at stake.
1: I'm interested in your analysis of that as somebody who studied this, because, of course, the, that you've outlined that predicament very clearly, but uh, that's the same in every country. We all have those debates, and yet it is so loud and vocal as a debate here in the States compared to other countries. Why is that? You know, it's a little hard for me to say because I my I focus most of my work on American
0: politics. But I, I think part of the reason it, it's become such a rallying point here is that it just it just fits, it connects with our our strong sense of, you know, we have this sense of individual rights that are very, very strong in the United States. And this idea of right to life that we must defend life. Just seems to strike at the core and seems like something that needs to be taken to a national level and that it needs to be taken into, into the political realm to be decided. It's interesting because in some ways, you know, we're very individualistic here, yet there's this corporate concern about this right to life. In other countries, it seems that the decision is seen more as a private decision between an individual woman and perhaps her doctor but here it's seen as something private but also public because there's a concern about the right for the vulnerable.
1: White evangelicals have demonstrated very high levels of support for President Trump. Do you think they are happy with his performance? Well, you know, we I haven't I haven't seen
0: all of the data. I think you'll be talking to others who can get you more into the data. But one of the things I think is important is when we unpack white evangelical support for Trump, there's a there are a couple things going on that are important to note. The first thing to note is when we look at the election results themselves, this was probably the most polarizing presidential election we've seen in um, at least 100 years. Since we have been keeping polling data, our two candidates were the most unpopular presidential candidates who have ever run for the presidency, as long as we've actually been able to measure their popularity. So you have you have two unpopular candidates that a majority of Americans don't want to vote for either of them. So when we look at this election, I think it's just important to realize that we're talking about an election where people don't want to vote for Trump and they don't want to vote for Clinton. So your choice is, um, who do you choose in this environment? What we found is a lot of people in the 2016 election voted more against one candidate than for another. So one way is to say 81% of at least this particular way that you measure white evangelicals voted for Trump. That is true. Another way of saying it, again, using that measurement would be 81% voted against Clinton. That's probably a more accurate statement. So one thing you have here is how much of it is support for Trump full on and how much of it is choosing Trump over Clinton. I think there's a lot of that.
1: Why could they not stomach Clinton? What was the problem? You know, Clinton's complicated.
0: One of the things about Clinton that... um, made this election more complicating is that she's been such such a high-profile figure in American politics for so long. And not just as Hillary Clinton, the politician herself, um, but also Hillary Clinton, the defender of Bill Clinton, who was so unpopular with many conservatives in the United States. So she really first entered the public sphere as the first lady, as the defender of a philandering husband, as the defense, you know, and so, so there's a sense of she's propping up this this president. There was a lot of concern about his character and his morality, and how she was sort of complicit with that. So you have lots of negative baggage that's attached to Hillary Clinton for a very, very long time. So this has been another president, another Democratic candidate. It would have been very different than Hillary Clinton, about whom many, many people have made up their minds, even though they may not know that much about her. But she's such a public figure.
1: And she didn't come through for this part of the base, did she, on abortion? So that's part of it. Another part of it
0: would also have to do with the moves that the Democratic Party has made in recent years. Again, back to that issue. There are others, but the abortion issue is an important one. This year, for the first time, really since the abortion issue has been contested at the national level, the Democratic Party made a decision... To make their platform wholly pro-choice, it used to be that the Democratic Party made room for both pro-life and pro-choice Democrats. But this year, in their party platform, they said that they no longer supported what's called the Hyde Amendment, which which um, bans public money going to abortion. The Hyde Amendment was a way to allow pro-life Democrats some space. So the Democratic Party moved to the left on abortion. And again, there are other issues that are important too, but that is a central issue for many religious voters. And here they have the Democratic Party saying, we have no room for you on that issue. We saw that on LGBT rights as well. We saw that in discussions of the Supreme Court. It wasn't a sense of here is a moderate Democrat putting forward moderate policies, although there were many. But on the cultural issues, the Democratic Party had made a decision to move significantly to the left, leaving more moderate Republicans very little option but to vote for the Republican Party.
1: And you mentioned the um, Hillary's perceived condoning of her husband's behavior. Do you think that President Trump is being held to a different moral standard than other presidents have been?
0: It does seem that way. I find that personally quite troubling. I think part of it also may be that we've become just more jaded as a, as a, um, as a nation, in part perhaps because of even the way things were handled during the Clinton presidency, we kind of have this, you know, sort of this up and down view about um, to what extent one's private morality is important in an in, in a, in a public politician. In the United States, we typically are more concerned about their private morality and see that as sort of foreboding of how they would how they would serve in office. So we typically are more um, critical of private morality than than in other countries. But what we saw with Trump, interestingly. He you know, he he has boasted about adultery. He's not someone who is showing upstanding character and many of the ways he's not being held to the same standard clearly that Bill Clinton was held to. So many who were concerned about Bill Clinton's character and raising these issues sort of flipped on the views. It was very interesting to me in 2016. So in with the Bill Clinton during the Bill Clinton impeachment, Democrats were saying, policies matter most, character matters less. In the 2016 election, this flipped, and we had Republicans saying, policy matters most, character issues matter less. Same argument, just coming from exactly the opposite sides of the political aisle.
1: Certainly from our side of the pond, we see more and more stuff coming out all of the time about uh, Trump's current or previous behavior and relationships. How do you see women responding to that in terms of his propriety and the way that he talks about and to women?
0: You know, there definitely are differences in support between um, female voters and male voters. Again, there'll be others that can give you um, better access to that because I don't have exact data in front of me, but I can talk more generally Generally, what we have found is that Trump is most popular with male voters, that he does not do as well with female voters. Exactly what's going on there is not really <laughs> for me to say, but from, from the information that, that I have available, it does strike me that, the, the, that women voters are less likely um, to look aside the character issues and that male voters are, are more likely to put them aside.
1: But socially conservative evangelicals across the board surely um, are not in favor of some of the language he uses, some of the obscenity, swear words, the the kind of brutal, belligerent um, language in some of his tweets, things that he personally puts on the record himself. How do you see people responding to that sort of behavior?
0: Right, and that's that's something that definitely um, that's definitely something that that creates, I think, a real real quandary. Again, some there's 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 multiple responses. I think the best. Probably the best way to explain it is that there are multiple responses. There are some within the evangelical community who have been very vocal from the beginning of the Trump campaign, people that we often now call the never-Trumpers, who have raised these concerns, often people who've worked in Republican administrations, who have strong Republican and evangelical credentials saying, this is not who we are, this is not how we speak, this is not how we behave, this is not appropriate behavior. Um, And so there have been very vocal critics. At the same time, there have been others who have said, this is not necessarily how I would speak. This is not necessarily how I would behave. This is not how I would encourage my children to behave. But look at these policies. These policies align with what we think is important, and we just have to overlook that. So you kind of have those two sides, the policy first, character later, another side that says character is so important, have to be careful here because it's going to sound like a pun, but people will say character trumps policy. So this idea is tr- character is more important than policy. I think a lot of people are stuck in the middle, too. I mean, I, I see this. I, I teach at an evangelical Christian institution. A lot of our students are, you know, have a hard time sort of trying to figure out exactly what to do with President Trump. Many of them would agree with his policy positions, but most of them find the way that he speaks and the language that he uses and the behavior to be very offensive
1: on the policy positions looking back over this first year of his presidency has he delivered for the white evangelical base um in some ways i think he's delivered
0: pretty well obviously it depends on where you focus your attention one place that was very important to many voters in the 2016 election was concern about the federal judiciary the supreme court of course being first and foremost but also filling the federal judiciary. So when we look at appointments to our judiciary, and it's important to know that our federal judiciary, these are the highest ranking people in our judicial system. They are appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and they serve for terms of as long as they want to be there, their life for good behavior according to our constitution. So lifetime appointments to the judiciary can last for 30, 40 years. So this is a generational Change And what we have seen is a very consistent pattern of appointing very conservative judges, both at the Supreme Court level, but then also throughout the federal judiciary. That is something that will be a lasting legacy and something that would very much align with a typical conservative evangelical um, political point of view. So that's definitely been a win. There haven't been a lot of major policies that we've seen through Congress. It's been a very contentious and divisive time in Congress even though the Republican Party has a majority in both houses. It has not been simple for President Trump, and we haven't seen a lot of legislation really make it through. The biggest piece of legislation that made it through, of course, was the tax bill at the end of last year. The tax bill doesn't directly connect with things that we would think of as religious, but we do find that most um, ideological conservatives are looking for tax relief. So this is the kind of thing that pr- that would appeal to much of Trump's base, religious or otherwise.
1: And looking ahead, how do you see the future of the relationship between white evangelicals and U.S. politics as a result of this presidency?
0: Oh, boy, that's a hard one. <laughs> you know, we'll just this is one of those things we're just going to have to see. One thing I think that's been very interesting about this presidency... Because President Trump is so different than anyone who's ever held this office, lots of expectations, lots of even understandings of how the office works have been really thrown into question. So what we're seeing are lots of people asking questions that weren't asking questions before because this is not politics as usual. So I think we will look back on the Trump presidency as as a turning point we're going to look back on this as a time when we've started to to begin to to ask new questions and also rethink assumptions at the moment we're just a year in and so many there's so many things swirling in american politics i don't think it's possible to know exactly what all those questions are going to be but i think we will begin to ask more questions about things like the relationship between character and um, and policy We'll think more about conflicts of interest. We'll think more about the relationship between the president and Congress. We'll think more about the importance or lack of importance of consistent political ideology. All of these things are just there right now in the mix being discussed. Another thing I think that we'll find coming out of this election, this election has definitely raised a lot of questions about what does it mean in the United States to be an evangelical? Clearly, there's a strong connection between evangelicalism and Republican politics. Not every evangelical is Republican by any stretch, but most are. That relationship is very strong. Um, The question is, how much is that relationship connected directly to religious views, and how much of that relationship is really just kind of a a political—is it fundamentally political, is it fundamentally religious, or is it a mix of the two— What we found is that some people, when they describe themselves as an evangelical, are thinking about themselves and their religion, their understanding of their relationship to Jesus Christ, and that's fundamental. Others, when you ask them if they're an evangelical, they're really thinking more about, am I politically liberal or conservative? So for some, it's more of a religious label. For others, it's more of a political label. That's very confusing. I think it's very problematic, and that needs to be sorted out.
1: And finally, do you see any learning for the church as a result of this season? Do you think the church will be different in future?
0: I I definitely think so. I mean, this has raised a lot of questions about this connection between politics and religion in the United States. For so many in the United States, it does seem that if one is theologically conservative, it's almost as if they assume they automatically need to be ideologically conservative, there's absolutely nothing to suggest that that needs to be the case. That's just become the practice over the last generation. I think it's a church, one of the most important lessons is that we need to remind people what is the fundamental of our, what are the fundamentals of our faith? What do we believe? What is our religion? What does our religion teach? What do our holy scriptures teach? Remind people of that and to focus on that first— And then from those teachings, what are the implications? What does this mean about how we conduct our lives and our families? What does this mean about how we conduct our lives in politics, et cetera? But when we get get religious views and political views so deeply entwined that we can't tell which one's feeding the other, that suggests to me that at the church level, there needs to be a real emphasis on, let's remind people of what we believe, why we believe, and try to help people focus on the fundamentals of their faith first.